Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the Book of Acts, and here Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers are going to be discussing Acts chapter 13, which is a big transitional chapter in the Book of Acts. As always, we invite you to check out those show notes. In particular, we invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the bell as well. That way you'll be notified when a new video comes out every week. We are right now in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation and are also putting out examples of psalm chanting in video form. We really hope that you enjoy this conversation and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers discussing Acts chapter 13. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Jeff Myers, Alistair Roberts, James Bijan, and Brian Motes is in the background helping us to get the recording done. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Acts. We'll be talking about Acts 13 today, and this is a, a beginning of, a, of an important new phase in the book of Acts. The initial several chapters of Acts take place in Jerusalem and concern the church in Jerusalem. Then uh, the focus begins to move out from Jerusalem after the martyrdom of Stephen. And some of the disciples flee from Jerusalem out to Samaria and then eventually to Antioch in Syria. And from Antioch, the uh, church begins to send out missionaries to the Gentiles. And so you have the beginning of the Gentile mission with the martyrdom of Stephen. We've been looking for the last several weeks at uh, a series of episodes in the ministry of Peter. Even though we've moved out of Jerusalem, the focus comes back to Peter and he's dealing with Cornelius a Roman, so he's making a transition from Jews to Gentile God-fearers. And then last week we looked at Acts 12, which is the last episode where Peter takes a central place, uh, and it's a, a kind of farewell episode where Peter goes through a death and resurrection and departure sequence that resembles the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Chapter 13 begins a new phase because it's the beginning of Paul's missionary journeys, which will occupy provide much of the structure of the rest of Acts. In this respect, Acts resembles the structure of Luke, which has a very lengthy travel narrative that begins in the middle of the, in the, middle of the book at chapter 9, and then uh, climaxes with Jesus entering Jerusalem at the beginning of uh, Holy Week on Palm Sunday. And we have a, so we have one long journey narrative in, in Luke and a series of journeys that Paul is, Paul is taking here. Again, as we look at Acts, we see again and again how the apostles' lives are being shaped and formed to resemble the life of Jesus. Uh, Chapters 13 and 14 go together. We'll only be looking at chapter 13 this week, but uh, we should note that the first missionary journey of Paul is uh, covering both of these chapters. And one of the verbal hints that this is the case is the statement about work at the beginning of chapter 13. While they're ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. That's the beginning of chapter 13. Now, when we get to the end of chapter 14, we have another reference to the work which they had commanded, uh, accomplished. Verse 26, uh, they sailed to Antioch. They're going back to the original destination. So it's a there and back again narrative. They go back to Antioch from which they had been committed to the grace of God for the work that they had accomplished. So they're ordained to work. They go out to Antioch. Uh, Cyprus and some other places uh, into South Galatia, 
and then they returned to uh, Antioch, uh, having accomplished the work to which they had been set apart. So um, we're only looking at half of that story this week, but it's important to keep in mind that these chapters hang together as a unit. Since you mentioned verse 2, Peter, it's, it's instructive to note that it's the Holy Spirit who says to them, set apart for me, these guys. And then in verse 3, they lay their hands on them and send them off. And then in verse 4, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. Um, there's, this, there's this correlation, connection, or there's this uh, instrumentality of the church. It's the Holy Spirit who speaks through people, who acts through people, who acts through the church, not in some uh, extra human supernatural kind of way. Well, it is supernatural, but um, I think it's always important to, to recognize is that uh, it's the church who fasted and prayed, and they were answered by the Holy Spirit, who no doubt um, took the form of people's speeches in the in this community as they're worshiping. And then uh, it's all just Holy Spirit and church, and it's all just smudged together. And I think that's the way we need to think about the activity, uh, the work of the church. It's the Holy Spirit working through us. Yeah. It's interesting to look at the list of people in verse 1. Mm. They seem to be um, quite a diverse group. Um, so you have Barnabas, who's um, from, um, trying to remember, he's Super from Cyprus, yeah. Yeah, I think um, so. Levite, and he's cousin of John Mark. You have Simeon, who's called Niger, who presumably is a black man um, with that name. Um, you have Lucius of Cyrene. Um, again, some have speculated following Origen that he's Luke. Um, not sure about that. And then Manuel, who's a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, who's very connected, clearly. And um, Saul, of course, who's mm. uh, has been an important student, Jewish student um, of top teachers, someone who's very well connected in other ways. And so this isn't a group of just people from um, the local area. These are people with cosmopolitan connections. They're people with a great degree of learning, um, in certainly in some cases. And we're seeing something of the flavor of the early church. These are likely people who move from city to city on a regular basis as well. Mm. Yeah, I, I was struck by that same thing. It's, it's a re remarkably diverse group. And yet, at the same time, interestingly, I would guess that all the people here mentioned are Jewish, as would the majority of the early church at that time have been. And so it just, to my mind at least, um, uh, kind of uh, brings to mind just the, the perfect timing of the way in which God is is doing this. I was listening to a, a debate a while ago and someone was saying, well, you know, why would God have arranged things like this to have the resurrection at a time when various things can't be verified and, and this, that and the other? But, I mean, if, if you just think of the timing of the thing, the, the Jewish people at this stage are very diasporized and so you have all this um, diversity. You have sort of uh, communities, almost landing points where the word of God can go and take root in all sorts of different cultures and levels of society and the jews were sort of diasporized in that way in which very few um ethnic groups were at that time and so there is 
just this r- remarkably um, uh, fertile ground in, in which the gospel can take root and then go out. Which is confirmed by what goes on in the, the, the uh, beginning of the narrative. They go to Cyprus, uh, an island in the Mediterranean, reach Salamis, a city on the island, and there's a synagogue there. And then they go further on the island and they come to Paphos. And there's not only Jews there, but there's a Jew who has a position with the a Roman proconsul, Bar-Jesus, who is, uh, as we'll talk about, is a, is a false prophet. But he's a Jew who has this uh, position of authority and, and advisory, an advisory position to the, to the Roman. And that is precisely what the Jews have been called to do in the diaspora at this phase in their history, right? They're called to bring wisdom and guidance to the nations. That's the uh, charge of Jeremiah to live in these cities and to be prosperous. And then uh, there's Daniel who advises Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and so on. And then there's Esther. So uh, this is exactly what the Jews should be doing in Cyprus at this time. uh, And yet they've perverted their vocation. You have a false prophet a false magus, a false wise man, who is advising the uh, oh, proconsul of Cyprus, yeah, Sergius Paulus. And the story, I think, is told in a way that um, presents Paul as the true alternative to um, to Bar Jesus or Elymas the sorcerer. Um, so the way that we finally are told that his other name, or his, um, he's also called Paul. What does it mean that he's also called Paul? Does it mean just at this random point in the story we're being given some detail about Paul Saul's identity? Or is it that he's also called Paul and Sergius Paulus would then naturally be advised by someone who's his counterpart in name and also someone who's able to teach him the way of truth? Um, the way that Elymas is judged is again reminiscent of the way that um, Saul was converted. So um, he's made blind. He makes crooked the straight paths of the Lord. And Saul was led to a street called Straight. Mm. Um, It seems that these two characters are being played off against each other. So we should notice in the change of name of Paul, there's something about his deeper calling being revealed, Mm -hmm. especially as juxtaposed with Elymas. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That making crooked is quite emphatic in the text isn't it when he um uh he makes crooked the straight paths of the lord in verse 10 and then the same verb is employed in uh verse 8 here it is when he is um i don't know how you translate it exactly but he's um you know steering away the proconsul from the faith sort of um again like making crooked is the root idea and it's um it's the very opposite of the way in which Luke begins his gospel where, you know, John is to make straight the paths of the Lord. Yeah, if I could put on my empty right hat for just a moment, uh, that imagery that, especially in John, John's ministry is imagery of return from exile, make straight the paths of the Lord as the Lord returns, leading Israel back from the, uh, from their, uh, from their, uh, from their Babylonian exile. In the original context, it would have been that, that would have been Isaiah's uh, uh, Isaiah's prophecy. So uh, uh, perhaps there that that there's a uh, that's a particular 
the particular allusion here in talking about the crooked and the straight ways of the Lord, which is which is the way of the Lord's return to Zion? Uh, is it through Jesus the Christ, uh, or is it through uh, the work of somebody like uh, uh, Bar Jesus Elymas? Which is the path that's going to lead to the Lord's enthronement in Zion? Hmm. I've always used uh, Tolkien's Lord of the Rings story about King Theoden, King of Rowan, who has this uh, crooked counselor, worm tongue, uh, Grima, um, and uh, and because of that, he's in a fog. Uh, the king is, but once uh, Gandalf breaks worm tongue's spell then the king recovers his wisdom and courage and the kingdom is healed. Remember that story so that every ruler needs wise counselors. And it's, it's not just, this is, and I appreciate what Alistair said about Paul's ministry, but it's not just Paul's ministry. This is this first episode in Paul's ministry in the world out in uh, the world outside of the land of Israel is symbolic. It's proleptic uh, of, it's a foreshadowing of things to come, not just for Paul, but for the church. This is the church's calling in the world to bring wise counsel to uh, to city governors, to uh, regional governors, to emperors. Um, and so I think this appearing right at the beginning of Paul's ministry is um, is instructive for the church as a whole. Uh, James, do you have any uh, insights on uh, the names of this Magus? Not e- explicitly. I, I, I think that um, Elimas probably comes from like an Ar- Arabic root that just means to be strong and powerful. And so I guess that um, uh, it's related to magician uh, by, by virtue of that fact. And um, it, it's, it's not uncommon for in the new testament when people would say you know for that is the meaning of of his name for people to um embody like an extra layer of interpretation um in that sense so like when mm-hmm. in the gospels the name rabbi is um explained it's explained as you know me meaning teacher which kind of etymologically it, it, it doesn't but it, it's just adding that extra layer of mm-hmm. interpretation to it and bar jesus would be son of jesus Right. Yeah. 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 So there's a yeah another uh, another uh, way of juxtaposing Paul with Bar Jesus Elymas. He has the name that would associate him with Jesus, uh, but he's not truly a brother or son of Jesus. He's uh, he's a false prophet. Uh, Paul is the true son of Jesus, if we can use that language, who's coming to uh, take his place as an advisor to the proconsul. Right. I mean, he's um, exposed as actually a son of the devil, isn't he, rather than a, a son of Jesus yeah, in verse yeah. 10 there. The way in which both Saul and um, Elimas here uh, become blind is just strikes me as, as an interesting thing. It is, in a sense, their um, physical condition is being brought in line with their spiritual condition. Um, both people at that time are spiritually blind. They are um, enemies of, of the word of God, um, and and their physical condition is being aligned with that. And I suppose that then puts the healings in um, a different light. These blame who leap for joy and so forth, and the others who are healed, we're to see those as much more than just uh, relief from physical uh, difficulties, but a- as um, a spiritual work which is being born in them. 
meanwhile, I guess when Peter is um, asleep um, uh, um, in the previous chapter, um, and that seems almost to be a picture of unbelief, which the um, which the church then uh, have as they pray for him in, in chapter twelve. It, it's a picture of um, uh, being, I guess, unaware of the purposes of God and, and the work of God in in the world around them. One of the things that uh, is evident here. Paul's ministry is is running parallel to the ministry of the apostles in Jerusalem, beginning from uh, Pentecost on. They're not just proclaiming Jesus, but they're accomplishing wonders and signs. Uh, and so, as James was saying, this is the those signs accompany the preaching uh, for Peter and the others, and they're doing the same for for Paul here. So that's one of the one of the dimensions of what happens uh, with uh, Bar Jesus is the. The ama- uh, the sign of wonder that causes amazement among the people, including the proconsul, who sees what the Lord has done, not just the teaching, but also the, the wonder that he does. So after that episode, Paul uh, and his companions go off to Paphos and Perga in Pamphylia, and then they travel inland. They're now in what would be present-day Turkey, travel inland to Pisidian Antioch. At least at some stages of the history of this region, this would have been part of Galatia. It wouldn't be part of the ethnic Galatia, but it would be part of the Roman province of Galatia. Uh, so this is a, a, an encounter in at least southern Galatia. Uh, and uh, they go to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, Pisidian Antioch, and Paul stands up and gives his first address in the book of Acts. Again, we're following the ministry of the apostles in Jerusalem, uh, where they're preaching and, and they have these big set set sermons. Uh, Paul gets his first set sermon here at Pisidian Antioch that goes from verse 16 all the way on to verse 41. So most of this chapter is taken up with that that initial speech and sermon that he gives. We've already seen the way that Saul's name change or switches to Paul within the narrative. Now, um, many have said that God gives um, Saul a new name and that isn't something that's mentioned in the text. It's described as something that he already has as a name. But yet there is that shift, and that shift seems to be of literary importance. Um, Luke wants us to notice it and to pay attention to some of the ways in which the significance of this shift is being brought brought out. And I think it continues into his um, discourse in the synagogue, where he focuses upon the um, story of the rise of the kingdom, and particularly the um, giving of Saul, the son of Kish, the man of Benjamin, as the first king, and then the way that um, David is raised up after him when he's removed. And that removal of Saul and the replacement by David, I think, is mirrored in many respects by the removal of Saul's name and the replacement of that name by Paul. Um, That same shift from um, his former identity, which was very much associated with his Benjaminite zeal, um, the way that he was a bearer of a particular legacy as um, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, etc., that that's been put behind, and now he's associated with the the true Davidic king. I'm struck by the similarities between Paul's speech and Stephen's earlier speech. We noted when we look at looked at Stephen's speech that he focuses very much on the work of God driving everything which has happened to the Jewish um, people, rather than to uh, the Jews' own behaviour. And the same is 
is absolutely true here, isn't it? So in verse 16, the God of this people um, chose our fathers. He led them out of Egypt. Um, he put up with them, which doesn't sound particularly flattering of their behavior. Um, he destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan and, and so on. And it goes on. And this slight chronological uh, issue with the 450 years, which we could come to. But God is the subject of, of the whole thing. That seems to be Paul's thrust, just as it was um, Stephen's. I think the one major difference between the two sermons is uh, the focus of attention. In in the case of Stephen, it's a lengthy section about the the double visitation of Moses. Moses comes to Israel's rescue initially by killing the Egyptian. He leaves the Midian for 40 years, and then he returns and leads them out. But the focus is on Moses there. In uh, Paul's sermon here, he moves from the choice of the fathers, which is uh, no doubt the call of Abraham and Abraham's immediate descendants goes to the Exodus. Uh, the Exodus is passed over in a couple of Exodus and wilderness passed over in a couple of verses. And the target is really uh, the kingdom rather than the ministry of Moses. Uh, that's the, the focus of attention is raising up David and what the Lord has promised through David. We should point out that um, he is speaking not just to the Jews, that is the circumcised Jews in the synagogue, but also to the God fearers. And he says, uh, men of Israel and you who fear God. So apparently around the synagogue, presumably an open air synagogue, are all these Gentile God fearers who are not circumcised and yet looking to the God of the Jews for their, uh, their rescue, their deliverance. Uh, he mentions it again in verse 26, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God. Uh, this is going to be a big theme, of course, in Paul's ministry, how um, God-fearers come to faith in Christ and have an equal standing united to Jesus with the Jews. The Jews' choice and um, ability to make good decisions seems very much to be brought into question in verses 21 onwards, doesn't it? So they asked for a king. Um, Saul was the one who they ended up um, with. But then David um, was the man who God uh, asked for, if you like. I, I have found in David um, uh, a man after my own heart. And I guess it's, you know, goes without saying that this is uh, reflected in the, the Jews' rejection of, of Jesus. But it's it, explicit here, isn't it, that their, their desires and their choices weren't, weren't the good ones. It, it was God who was making the good choice of a king. Hmm. So David is David is chosen. And then uh, the promise that uh, Paul focuses on in verse 23 is that from the offspring of this man, according to promise, God has brought to Israel a savior who is Jesus. Uh, Jesus is a descendant of the king, and therefore he comes as the uh, saving king who will bring Israel out of, uh, out of bondage. And that's the, so it gives us royal emphasis to the, to the ministry and the work of Jesus. Uh, and that returns when you get to Paul's discussion of the death and resurrection of Jesus. God has fulfilled his promise to our children, verse 33, in that he raised up Jesus. And then he quotes from Psalm 2, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. So the uh, Psalm 2 is a psalm of kingship. Uh, the son installed on Zion, and Jesus is that son. He's the son of David. Uh, the good news now for the Jews is that David's son, <clears throat> David's son has been raised from the dead and is enthroned on Zion. Uh, and he'll be there permanently, as Paul goes on to say. 
Uh, he's not given over to corruption, and so he's going to be a David, uh, a seed of David who won't die, and uh, whose kingdom will never end because he's he's passed beyond death. So it gives a uh, the 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 good news in Paul's telling is a good news of a fulfillment of a royal promise. Uh, hearing you say that, Peter, uh, also it's striking that this is not a lecture about philosophy or ideas, even big ideas. It's not an exposition of a new system of thought uh, or uh, a uh, not about the attributes of God or something like that. This is this is a story. This is history. This is uh, Paul um, telling the story of God's work through Israel, culminating in Jesus, especially in his uh, resurrection from the dead. Um, and sometimes we forget that. I mean, uh, especially in reform circles, and I know everybody listening to this is not Presbyterian reform, but we get so obsessed with uh, doctrine and propositions and uh, concatenated systems and the Westminster Confession of Faith, which has a pigeonhole for everything. And we think that by becoming theological engineers that uh, somehow that's, um, and if we can just I explain things clearly in terms of ideas and, and propositions, that that's the, that's the gospel. But the gospel is the story. <laughs> and uh, that uh, often needs to be recovered in some of our circles. Yeah. One incidental detail, but um, which again is interesting, as it was in the preaching of Stephen, is how much attention Paul pays to the numbers. Um, seven nations, 450 years, 40 years um, Saul, the king of um, Israel, mm. and 40 years in the wilderness. Um, all of these details seem to be extraneous to the way that we would tend to tell the story. And some of the details are not recorded in scripture itself, but rather are derived from putting pieces together or maybe derived from other records. But it shows something about the interest and the concern to tell this story with accuracy, with recognition of the symbolic importance of certain details, and that these events actually happened. This is history, and we can date these events. The relative occurrence in time of these events matters also. That's a great yeah. point. The um, the actual figures seem to be significant as well. The 450, um, you, you can derive in various ways, but the 450 coupled with the 40 gives you 490 years. Now, that, that is 10 jubilees, and that resonates very much with Daniel's um, 70 weeks. And then, obviously, the mention of seven nations might emphasize the sevenfold nature of what is going on. So I, I would see here an, an allusion back to Daniel's prophecy. This is Paul's first uh, sermon, first, first said sermon in Acts, the first time we hear Paul speak at length. Uh, and it's also the first time that he brings uh, the question of justification into play, justification to those who believe, and justification uh, to those who believe in contrast to the ineffectiveness of the law in providing justification. And I'm uh, looking at verse 39, uh, Verse 38, Paul says, let it be known to you that through him, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed, and through him, everyone who believes is justified from sin. This dikaio, uh, often translated as freed or delivered. 
that were delivered or freed from all things, justified from all things, from which we could never be justified through the law of Moses. And I think that um, I've argued in various places that that accent of uh, liberation or deliverance has to be part of our understanding of Paul's uh, doctrine of ju- teaching on justification. And the reason for the, the, uh, the, 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 the law's failure to justify has to do with its impotency to bring that kind of liberation from, uh, from all things, from sin, from the power of sin. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, uh, as Paul introduces the, the idea of justification here, it's not, it's not merely a, a declaration of status, but it's a, a liberating or, or freeing act of God. In Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, he used Psalm 16, just as Paul does here. It seems that there were certain texts within the Old Testament that were especially loved by the early church to um, argue their points about Christ. And you have um, the classic verse from Psalm 2, um, that verse from Psalm 16, certain verses from Um, chapters 40 to 66 of Isaiah and other parts of scripture that we might not naturally latch upon to argue for the deity of Christ or to argue for the significance of his messianic mission, whatever it is. But yet these verses for some reason stood out to the early church. And I think as we look at them in more detail, we'll see some of the reason why and maybe gain a deeper understanding of the way that scripture can be used in the old testament can be used in our reading of the new and our understanding of christ's um work yeah expanding on that that's a good point uh also in verse 41 there's a reference to habakkuk which is going to be pretty key in paul's Uh, exposition of justification as Peter was talking about and yet he doesn't really mention uh, Habakkuk 2.4 the righteous shall live by faith but you've you've got a reference to Habakkuk there and the idea being you know if you want to press through in this particular crisis like the people had to during the time of Habakkuk then you're going to have to trust in God Um, and then immediately uh, after that, a reference to Habakkuk and the crisis is going to happen. Uh, Paul's speech provokes a crisis. Lots of people loved what he said, verse 42. Verse 42. Uh, some Jews and, and devout converts or God-fearers um, follow Paul. Then the next Sabbath comes in verse 44. They're all gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But now all of a sudden the Jews, and I take that to mean the leadership, uh, which it often means in the New Testament, filled with zealotry and began contradicting what Paul spoken had spoken. And so now there's this crisis, and those who have faith, those who trust, are going to be uh, juxtaposed to those who are scoffers and who are resisting uh, and not believing in the work that God had done back to Habakkuk. Uh, so that uh, the prophecy of Habakkuk also is working itself out here in uh, in Pisidian yeah, so Antioch. So Habakkuk gets fulfilled immediately in the immediate aftermath of Paul's quotation. The, the, the next Sabbath, a week later, the prophecy gets fulfilled. I'm, I, I think, again, that uh, of the importance of Luke 24 for the book of Acts. Uh, we've mentioned this several times, but 
uh, Jesus, after his uh, resurrection, is teaching the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then he teaches the eleven. And both times he's tell- teaching them everything concerning himself and all the scriptures. And every time we read one of these sermons in the book of Acts, that's what the apostles are doing. They they learned how to uh, understand the Old Testament by hearing this from Jesus. And so they're picking up these uh, uh, prophecies and applying them to the life of Jesus, but also to their own circumstance. Uh, that's what they're doing in verse 47, a quotation from Isaiah, which in the context of Isaiah is part of the servant prophecy about the servant. I, the servant is the one who's a light for the Gentiles who brings salvation to the end of the earth. But Paul says, the Lord has commanded us that we are the light of the Gentiles to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So not only are the scriptures about Christ, but the disciples themselves and their ministry are being incorporated into that scriptural pattern. And they are fulfilling, they're themselves fulfilling the scriptures in union with Jesus. Hmm. At this point, there seems to be... um a shift in the mission, um, whereas previously there were um, there was rejection among the Jews, and there were um, initial missions to, or uh, the story of Cornelius Peter going speaking the gospel to the Gentiles. Here, there is something more about the relationship between Jews and Gentiles that is brought to the surface. The ways that the Jews react against the fact that the Gentiles are receiving this message that the whole city comes together and receives what Paul is saying, that becomes a problem. And their response then becomes more than just um, a rejection of the message of Christ, but also a rejection of the people that Christ is bringing in. Um, And as we go through, there's also this interesting exploration of the two levels on which things are happening. On the one hand, people judge themselves unworthy of eternal life, and then on the other hand, we're told that um, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It, we're reminded that God is at work in all of this. This is something of God's doing. Um, and alongside that, that there is this, as a result, there's going to be this shift as the gospel is going to be brought to the Gentiles. The Jews have rejected it in a more definitive way at this point than they have previously. Mm-hmm. This is following the pattern of uh, the uh, apostolic ministry in Jerusalem. Once again, um, the spirit falls, Peter preaches, many are baptized, many believe, but then there's opposition um, based on envy and jealousy from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem. And Paul's ministry is going to follow the same pattern. Everywhere he goes, he's going to proclaim the gospel, uh, announce that Jesus is king. Many will believe but then there will be those who uh, oppose and and drive him out. And as here, Paul will often preach in synagogues and then be driven out from the synagogue and begin preaching to Gentiles. Here he's driven out of the city entirely because the Jews arouse the leading citizens, men and women of the city to persecute Paul and Barnabas so that they return to uh, Antioch. But they're, the same cycle is going through, which is the cycle of Jesus' ministry, of course, too. Jesus proclaims the good news, he proclaims the kingdom, uh, he's opposed, put to death, and then uh, rises and uh, the whole s- the cycle repeats again uh, in the lives of the apostles. Yeah. I wonder if jealousy almost has a, a twofold function in some of these chapters. One of the ways in which the Gentiles are to witness and, and 
convert the Jews in the book of Romans, for instance, is to stir them up to jealousy um, because mm-hmm. they see in Gentile converts something that they want. And I wonder in part if in verses sort of 43 onwards, for instance, you know, the Jews who do believe, I wonder if they, like the others, are also stirred up to jealousy, but their jealousy drives them to conversion rather than to driving Paul out, out of the city. Yeah, very interesting. I want to come back to something that Jeff mentioned previously about the emphasis on the concreteness and the particularity of what God has done in history. And Jeff was talking there about sort of, uh, what is stressed here is not just a bunch of divine attributes, but concrete things which God has done in the world. And I just feel this is a really vital thing to grasp. When we, if it were, if someone said, for instance, well, I'm not quite sure that God is omnipotent or omniscient um i think we would think that was a fairly big deal but when people say well i'm not quite sure that the exodus was actually a historical event um we seem to be a lot more casual about that and yet that's something that god really stresses in his own revelation of himself you know i am the god who who brought you out of egypt and who who has done all sorts of concrete things in in history and i think that's stressed throughout the sermons in the um, book of Acts, just this work of God um, throughout history and continuing in history through to the present day. And as I was just looking over this chapter as I, as I was preparing and, and sort of some of the chapters before it, um, I was struck by the overtones of Isaiah um, 35 over all these um, events that we've had in, in the first 13 chapters of, of this book there is um in isaiah the idea of um strengthening the weak and making firm the feeble knees which resonates with the um layman um there is speak about how the talk about how the glory of lebanon is brought to israel and the majesty of carmel and sharon and these are places which are mentioned and uh uh, identified with Damascus and other areas in previous chapters in the book of Acts. There is the lame leaping for joy that we see, the eyes of the blind being unstopped. And there are even um, resonances in terms of the names. We have um, Rhoda, which is sort of a Greek name for rose. We have Tabitha, um, which is um, a deer or a gazelle or something. And that, um, again, resonates with the same chapter in Isaiah, the way the desert will blossom uh, like the rose and the lame will leap like like a deer or like a gazelle. Um, there is the waters breaking forth in the wilderness and streams, which is resonant with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And I just see that th- there is, um, writ over all these chapters, um, a prophetic fulfillment of all the things which God is doing and bringing to pass in Israel's history. And you could almost say in, in answer to the um, uh, initial question, um, uh, is now uh, the time that you are now going to restore Israel? In a sense, the, the answer is yes. Um, a, a lot of these things are coming to pass before the disciples' very eyes. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. 
If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.